good morning, Baylife. How are we? Doing all right? Pray that you all had uh, a wonderful Christmas, that the Lord was gracious to you and you were able to spend that time with your family and your friends and your loved ones. I recognize that there are many people here this morning, and I'm sure more than a few that I don't know. So my name is Travis, and I'm the college and young adult ministry coordinator here at Baylife Church, and have been so blessed to have the opportunity to serve with Corey and the rest of the band who led you this morning in worship and just did a tremendous job as, yeah, you can clap. They were, they were good. Also, some of the people who greeted you this morning, uh, we, we served together in a ministry called Impact, which is geared towards 18 to 25-year-olds. For the past year, we've met on Friday nights, but in the new year, we're moving to Sunday nights from 6 to 7.30. If that interests you in any way, I'd love to speak with you about that. But I've been in this role for a year now, give or take a few days. And so last December, I was frantically trying to figure out how to do a good job in this new role that I was getting ready to assume. And so I conducted something of an informal polling survey, not scientific, not empirical in any way, but I started talking to my friends who were either in the 18 to 25-year-old range or kind of an outlier on either end. Maybe they were a senior in high school. Maybe they were just getting out of that age group and starting a family. And so I started to talk to them and say, okay, so what, what is it that you need? What is it that you are looking for in a church or a ministry that is, that is meant to help you follow Jesus well? Now, obviously, the church is not here to make people happy. It's here to proclaim the gospel of Jesus and to bring him glory. But it would be nice if we could make some people happy in the process. And so I started asking some questions of friends, and then I started reading a lot of books and reading some of the statistical information, as well as spending time in prayer just trying to figure out how am I going to do this? Because preceding this role, I was the janitor for Building B. So my, my knowledge was limited. I also had served in student ministry as well. But, but I started doing this research, and one of the overwhelming things that I felt I walked away with after that season of preparation was the sense that the people who came through this ministry, my prayer was, would, 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 my prayer was, there you go, my prayer was that they would leave with a sense and a recognition that they are not the first to have trusted and hoped in Jesus but we are the heirs of a very rich legacy of faith. Now, the, the reason being is that I grew up in an era where a lot of the really popular worship bands were writing songs thematically that talked a lot about our generation. A lot of the bands geared towards high school students and college students were talking about what our generation was going to do. We're going to be the generation that ends poverty. We're going to be the generation that chases after you. We're going to be the generation that seeks your face and arrogantly, we would proclaim that as though no one else before us had ever done that. And it started to really bother me. And I'm certainly not trying to detract from what the Lord is doing presently because we always want to celebrate what he's doing among his people today. He's a God of the living and he moves and lives among us. But shame on us if we ever celebrate what God is doing today at the expense of failing to recognize how he has providentially guided his church for 2,000 years. And so, stepping into this new year, I decided, my hope was at least that we would be able to introduce those who came through our ministry to some of the great history of faith that we have. And so, one of the things we did is we decided we were going to read some old dead guys who, who had some good things to say. And so, several months ago, actually back in November, 
we offered a book study group on a book called The Pursuit of God by a man named A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in Chicago in the 40s and the 50s. I believe he passed away in the 60s. He's also the editor of an evangelical magazine. The Pursuit of God was written on a train trip from Chicago to Dallas, Texas. It was written in one sitting overnight. And, and the way that we marketed it, if we can use that term, is at the end of our services during announcements, we just said, hey, if you're interested in reading a book that is considered to be one of the great classics of the faith in this century, we'd love to have you read it. And if you do read it, here's some places we'll be meeting to talk about it. And so about 10 to 12 people total read through the book, and, and we sat down and had a conversation. And the overwhelming point that was brought up again and again and again in all of our meetings was... I cannot believe that this book is 80 years old. I can't believe that this book is pushing a full 100 years in age. Because it's as if this man saw through a window of heaven into the problems the church would be facing now. And his voice is so fresh and so relevant. And the things that he was concerned about, the things he was worried would happen to the church if we didn't teach people to pursue God well, all of these things speak to us today. Because there is much to learn from the people who followed Jesus before us. So we read through this text. And, and then one of the things that we just finished is we walked through the season of Advent together. If you're unfamiliar, for the last 1,500 years, the Christian church has used Advent as an opportunity to prepare the hearts of the people of God for what we celebrate in Christmas, what we just celebrated the incarnation, the word being made flesh and dwelling among us. And having been a janitor in my previous life, I, I didn't really know how to teach through Advent. And so I picked up a couple different books and I picked up a few different pamphlets. And one pamphlet that I picked up was called Hurry Up and Wait, A Family Guide to Advent Devotionals. The title of this pamphlet, I think, has its fingers to the pulse of really what the heart of that season is meant to be and what it's always been. It was a time... And has been a time and continues to be a time where the church as a body commits to teaching the people of God how to wait well. Now, it may not at first glance appear this way, but the more you think about it, the more it seems that our God is pleased to let his people wait. We're told that there was 400 years of prophetic silence from the closing of the Old Testament before God spoke again in the word made flesh in Jesus and if you are a follower of Jesus, we now have waited 2,000 years for his return. There are times when God seems content to have his children wait rather than doing things immediately. But this rubs up against us culturally. We have a few things working against us that keep us from mining the riches of what God would have for us to understand and to teach us during these seasons of waiting. One of the things that's working against us in this discipline is technology. And, and I want to preface this by saying that I like technology. I printed my sermon notes from my handy-dandy MacBook. It's not a bad thing. But a couple months ago, I was on YouTube, which is never the beginning to any good sort of story. And it always ends up wasting a lot of time. And, and if you're familiar with this website, it, they host all kinds of videos, music videos, funny videos, cat videos, things like that. And advertisers are now paying YouTube... To, to run commercials, essentially, on the website. And if, uh, if the advertiser pays enough, you can't skip the commercial. 
Sometimes you only have to watch 50 seconds, but one such commercial came up that I couldn't skip. It was a cell phone advertisement. And for this advertisement, they had asked several different cell phone users what they were unhappy with about the current service provider. And all of their complaints were related to the internet service on their phone, or the 3G or the 4G or the 15G or whatever it's at now. And so the first person comes up and they ask him, what are you unhappy with about your phone? And he says, it, it drives me crazy when I push the icon to open my email and it takes 30 seconds for my email to open. I don't have time for that. And I think I dropped my coffee at this point because that's just a ridiculous thing to say. But then the next girl is interviewed. What do you not like about your phone? It, t- it takes a whole two or three minutes for a YouTube video to load. It takes five minutes for my podcast to download. My time is, is valuable. I don't have time for that. Now, some of you all laugh because there's many of us who didn't just wait 30 seconds for email, but grew up in a time where there was no email, and so you waited 30 years for email to come to existence, and you didn't know you were waiting for it. And maybe you still don't have it, and there's no shame in that. I grew up in a generation where the internet was young, thanks to Al Gore, apparently, and and we had this thing called dial-up, and many of you, I'm sure, remember dial-up. Your computer would make all these funny noises and sound like it was breaking. And then all of a sudden, you're connected to the Internet, and you hear the welcome, you've got mail from America Online. But that took time. That took two or three minutes, unless somebody answered the phone on the other side of the house, and then you had to start over. And then you could check your email. And and then if you wanted to watch a video, heaven help you, that's going to take a whole lot longer as well. But as technology has progressed and evolved, the exchange of information has grown quicker and quicker and quicker, and we expect it to happen faster and faster and faster, and we become more and more impatient. But it's not just technology. Several, several years ago now, I played in a couple of different bands and do currently, and some of my friends who are also in bands from across the state and the country. We're in town, we played a show in Tampa and decided that what better way to celebrate the end of a successful punk rock concert than to go to Denny's. And and so we went to Denny's at about 11.30 midnight and sat down and it was very clearly understaffed. There was about 12 to 15 of us and there were two people working at Denny's that I saw. There was the, the man or the woman working in the kitchen and then there was our server. And it was the longest I've ever involuntarily sat at a restaurant. It took an hour for them to take our order, an hour for the order to come out, and then an hour for us to get our checks, and about 45 minutes to an hour for all of us to pay for our checks. And during this span of time, my friends began to grow more and more and more impatient until people just started leaving. Like, I, I asked for my check an hour ago, and it's still not here. I'm, I'm done. I don't, I don't need to pay for this. I shouldn't have had to wait this long to where there was only a handful of us left. And I'm wondering if I'm going to sit in the back of Denny's washing dishes until I pay off my friend's tabs at Denny's. But, but here's the point there is that we are increasingly coming to think that when we are forced to wait, it's an affront to our dignity. My time is valuable. How dare you make me wait? How dare you make me slow down? Now, I'm certainly not saying that we shouldn't be respecters of people's time, because we ought to be. But I do wonder what happens when our impatience, driven by technology and the idea that our time is valuable, 
and in fact something that is precious to us that people don't have the right to demand of us. What happens when you and I come to scripture with these ideas and the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently on him? Because now it's not your iPhone that's making you wait and now it's not the servers at Denny's, but it's the almighty God of heaven and earth. What happens when we come to the fruits of the Spirit and we go through love and joy and peace and patience? How do we handle this? Normally we don't. Modernity has not equipped us to practice patience and to wait well. But the Bible doesn't care about your iPhone or your fast food. The command remains the same, that the people of God are to be willing to wait for God to meet with them and answer the prayers and petitions that they bring before him. So we, again, I say, we are so fortunate that we are not the first to have followed Jesus because we, are, we have failed in our waiting. There are people who have been greatly successful. There's a group of Christians from the 16th and 17th century called the Puritans. You might know them as the Christians who burned witches at the stake, but we're going to overlook that minor historical squabble for, the point, the, for, for this point. Their theologians and their pastors often wrote of God's school of waiting. This idea that the Lord sees fit to have his people wait, not so that they might suffer, but so that he might teach them something that can't be taught through immediate gratification. They would often refer to the Christian life almost as a pilgrimage, as a long journey home down a dusty road. And there would be times where in the Christian life we would come to a fork in the road and we would look heavenward and see if we were to go straight or to the left or to the right. And instead of God giving us directions and answering us so we can continue on our merry way, he pulls out a chalkboard and a chair and he says, sit down, shut up, and listen. I have something to tell you while you wait. And then we'll talk about where to go next. So, at some point or another in all of our lives, we find ourselves in God's school of waiting. I would venture to say many of us have walked in this morning finding ourselves in God's school of waiting. Perhaps you are waiting on the results of a biopsy or blood work, which is going to determine your medical future. Perhaps you are waiting for a husband or a wife to fulfill the vows that they committed and made to you on your wedding day. Perhaps you're waiting for a husband and wife in general, and you find yourself in a season of singleness. Perhaps you find yourself in financial ruin or in a crumbling home that can't be repaired because the means are not there to that end. And you find yourself in God's school of waiting. My prayer is that as we come to the scriptures this morning, we would see that the Lord has given us some example of what it means to wait well. And we would learn what it means to be still before the Lord and wait patiently on him. So before we open up the word of God, can we go to the Father and ask for wisdom? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy poured out on us. Lord, we affirm the things that we have sung, that your Holy Spirit is welcome here and that it is honored here. And that it's by your Spirit's direction and wisdom that we might divide your word rightly and understand it fully. So anoint our hearts and our minds that we might feel the weight of this text, Lord, but that we might also intellectually digest it so that we can go forth from this church and we can live out the truths that we understand. God, I pray that you would push aside ignorance, arrogance, unbelief, doubt, foolishness that exists in me or anybody here that would prevent you from speaking clearly 
that you would bind up the thoughts of our hearts and that you would give us the ability to set our minds on things above now as we come to your word, which does not change with the passing of time. It's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. If you do me this courtesy, would you open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 22. We're concluding a series this morning, which I believe is now three weeks in length, three or four weeks. We've been looking at the first Christmas album. And we've been looking at some of the songs and the great expressions of the people who were present during the first coming of the Lord Jesus, during his birth in Bethlehem. And so we have been in the Gospel of Luke in many ways. Some interesting things about Luke as you're turning to chapter 2, verse 22. Uh, Many times if somebody were to ask you to name the 12 apostles, you might start out with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, except that Luke was not one of the 12. Luke did not walk with Jesus among the disciples. Instead, he came to faith later in his life. But he's referred to elsewhere in the New Testament as the beloved physician, which has led many people rightly to think that Luke was probably a doctor. And so he followed Jesus and became a surgeon of souls even as he worked on the physical form of man. But there came a point in Luke's life where a man named Theophilus commissioned him to go to the Holy Land and to confirm all the things Theophilus had been told. Theophilus had been educated in the scriptures and who Jesus was. Uh, But Luke begins his letter and he says, Theophilus, I have undertaken this process so that you might be assured of the things that you were taught. And so the book of Luke and the book of Acts are in fact letters written to a Christian who wants to know that his confidence has not been misplaced. So Luke spends a significant amount of time around the people who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who sat under the Sermon on the Mount, who were fed in the feeding of the 5,000. Many people think the first two chapters of Luke are the result of him sitting down with Mary and asking her, can you tell me what the early life of your son was like? And so in the early chapters, we find the scenes that have been played out in Charlie Brown's Christmas carols and in nativity displays in the fronts of our homes. The shepherds in the field, the announcement of the birth of Jesus being made to lowly men and people who tend to sheep. We find the baby in the manger in the early chapters of Luke. The Lord Jesus humbling himself and emptying himself as he comes in the form of a man. And we pick up several weeks after those events in Luke chapter, 20, chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. We'll read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and see what the Lord has for us here. Luke two twenty-two begins in this way. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of of the law. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory, for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said to him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years and when she was, from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for redemption, for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. And so we might look at this narrative and find a couple of different things worth our time this morning. There's many things we could preach on out of this. We could look at the great prophecies of Simeon. And I'm going to say this, the last two services I've accidentally called him Samuel numerous times. So know that in my mind, Simeon and Samuel are synonyms, and that's who I'm referring to. We might look at the prophecies of Simeon to Mary and Joseph. We might look at Anna and what it means for her and her friends to wait on the redemption of Jerusalem and what that redemption is. And we might draw some very interesting and profound truths about our Lord from there. But I would rather look specifically at Simeon and Anna and how it is that they wait for the promises of God. Because both of them, we are told, are waiting on the Messiah. And it would seem, just from what Luke has given us, the information he's told us, that they've been waiting a very, very, very long time. Both of them are advanced in age. And Simeon, when he finally comes to the end of his waiting, is so excited that it appears from the text that when Jesus is carried in by Mary, it's almost as if he just takes the baby out of Mary's arms and starts singing like it's an episode of Glee, except in the temple. And I recognize that if that happened to many of you, you would probably not come back to this church out of fear. But I want to look at these adjectives that are used to describe how both Simeon and Anna wait. So, Simeon is recounted beginning in verse 25. It says this, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was, a right, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and recounted this great song. So Simeon is waiting, first of all. But there is a point about Simeon that Luke wants to emphasize over and over and over again. Specifically, that this is a man who is anointed by the Spirit. That he is led by the Spirit. That he walks in step with the Spirit. That he is sensitive to the Holy Spirit's guidance, which brings us to our first point when we find ourselves in God's school of waiting. We wait well when we wait in the Spirit. Now that is a phrase that would make for a good wall plaque that you might hang in your kitchen, but it is worth unpacking so that we might know what it means more fully. How is it that we wait in the Spirit? And, and even a greater question than that is how is it that we walk in the Spirit? A.W. Tozer, who I mentioned earlier, has a really helpful book on this. It's called Life in the Spirit. So you would presume that it would give us a little bit of instruction there. In chapter 3, he talks about how we as Christians might cultivate our relationship with this most neglected member of the Trinity. 
And he begins by saying this, if you and I would desire to walk in the Spirit, to be guided by God's Holy Spirit, and to wait in the Spirit as Simeon did, the first thing that you and I must do is we must make much of Jesus. If you read the scriptures, Jesus' ministry is anointed after his baptism by the descending of the Holy Spirit upon him in the form and likeness of a dove. Jesus breathes on the apostles and they receive the Holy Spirit. He says it's better that he leave because he's going to the Father and he and the Father will send the Spirit. We confess this in the creeds that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And so it would seem that our experience with the Holy Spirit is keenly tied up in what we make of Jesus. And if we want to walk in the Spirit and wait in the Spirit, we have to make much of Jesus. So what does that look like when we're waiting? How do we make much of Jesus in seasons of waiting? Well, I think that it might look something like this. Perhaps you find yourself in one of these seasons of waiting. And I think in order for us to make much of Jesus, we have to look again and again at the gospel and apply it afresh to where we are. Say, how does the gospel of Jesus speak to my circumstances now? What does his life, his death, his resurrection in power, his ascension and his return, what does it mean for me now? How does it apply to my waiting? So perhaps you find yourself in a season of doubt. Maybe you feel like God is distant and your prayers reach nothing more than the ceiling of your home. And it's led to sleepless nights and much distress. To apply the gospel in this situation might look something like this, that you would look at how Jesus dealt with Thomas and his doubts. Thomas says that he won't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless he's seen the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. But how does Jesus deal with the doubt in Thomas? He meets with Thomas and he reaches out his nail-pierced hand and he gives Thomas a new reason to believe. And so in the midst of your doubts and your struggles, you might say the gospel of Jesus applies to me here because I can see that he is a friend of doubters and he longs to restore me back to faith. Perhaps your finances are in ruins. You're struggling to pay your rent, your mortgage, your electric bill to keep food on the table. And you're waiting on the provision that only God can provide to deliver you out of the situation. I wonder what it might look like to apply the gospel of Jesus in this way. To look in the Psalms where it says, The Lord is my portion and my cup. Or what it might look like to look at what Jesus says to Paul. That my grace is sufficient for you. And so in your season of waiting, you apply the gospel by saying that Jesus is enough. And I'll make much of Jesus even in my poverty, and even in my financial lacking, because he is enough. Or maybe you find yourself waiting. You're, you're looking for a relationship, hoping that you'll find fulfillment in it, maybe even hoping that you'll find life in it. You're tired of being single. You're tired of being the third wheel and the unmarried person. You're tired of living out 27 dresses and ending up in all your friends' wedding, but never getting to plan your own. Many times we come to situations like that and we think that we'll find life in these relationships and these are sources of life. But what would it mean to take the beginning of the Gospel of John seriously, which says that in Christ Jesus is life? And to say, well, I wait for God to provide this wonderful blessing in my life. I will find life in Jesus by making much of him. This might be part of the way that we wait in the Spirit. Now, Tozer points out a second way, and it's interesting he points this out because it's also noted of Simeon. 
We're told that Simeon not only was a man who was anointed by the Spirit, but we're said that he was in Jerusalem. His name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. The next thing that Tozer says is that in order for us to walk in the Spirit, in order for us to wait in the Spirit, we have to be committed to righteousness. Now, many of us start off this way. If we can use the previous illustration of walking in singleness, many of us start off by saying, I'm going to remain pure until I'm married. I'm going to wait well. I'm going to prepare myself for the spouse that God would have for me. I'm going to walk righteously. But then days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months and months turn to years and we grow tired of waiting and we cling to anything that will fill the time. So we might draw a parallel, and this would be a personal one for me, as someone who could stand to lose a little bit of weight. Every few weeks, I commit to losing a lot of it of weight because I see an old picture of me and go, I want to wear that shirt again. That would be cool. So every three weeks or so, I commit to this, and I say, all right, this is it. I clear out all of the Doritos from my fridge. I guess they're not in my fridge. They're in my cabinet. Clear out all the Doritos, and I clear out all the junk food, and I apply for a gym membership, and I pay the yearly fee, and I start running, and I'm in it for the long haul mentally. I'm ready to, to work and to wait and to wait well until I get back to where I want to be, till I see the end in sight. But the first week passes, and I've lost half a pound, and I say, oh, this might take longer than I thought. The second week passes, and I'm up to one pound, and I say, okay, that's progress, but not much. Third week passes, and I've gained three pounds. Fourth week passes, and I weigh more than I did when I started. And I begin to grow discouraged from waiting, and checkers sounds like a great way to make me feel better. But doesn't this happen when we wait? Sometimes we're committed to righteousness. We're committed to waiting well. We're committed to walking with God through it. But as the time passes, we grow discouraged. Simeon is called a righteous man, and he's righteous in his old age. Before the cross of Christ, that is not a term that is applied to people in Scripture liberally. People are called righteous before the cross of Jesus because they walked with God faithfully for long periods of time. But Simeon is not the only person waiting in this text. There's also a a woman that we're told is named Anna. In verse 36, it says this, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, Anna, it would seem, has lived a very painful life. She knew her husband for seven years before she became a widow, which is not a lengthy period of time at any point in human history. Maybe more common back then, but still not enviable or expected. And then she spent the rest of her life till she was 84 as a widow, also significantly more difficult in Anna's day and age because it meant that there was no means for her to obtain income, pay for her bills, or take care of any children that she might have. Anna, too, is waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, waiting for God to move and restore hope that things will not always be as they are. But how does Anna wait? We're told that Anna is a prophetess, that she's advanced in years, and she's 84. But we're also told that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna waits, but she occupies her time with worship 
with prayer, with fasting, with meeting with the people of God. Anna is practicing what we might call the spiritual disciplines. I would define them in this way. These are biblical practices which, when put into practice regularly in faith, will allow us to know God more fully. And by the Spirit's power through them, we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Anna is not committed, not willing to wait and twiddle her thumbs until something good happens. But she's going to do something while she waits. And what she's going to do is going to advance her knowledge and her relationship with the God upon whom she waits. In the 1800s, there was an event called the Great Disappointment. I hope that that is never used to describe any sort of event that you or I throw. Any birthday parties, if they're called the Great Disappointment. I don't think we did a good job. The Great Disappointment was an event in the early half of the 18th century where a group of Christian ministers and Mennonite ministers and Southern Baptist ministers, they all became convinced that they had studied the scriptures thoroughly enough that they knew the year which Jesus was going to return. Now, I don't know how thorough they could have been because Jesus said he didn't know when he was coming back. But I guess they overlooked that part. And so they were so convinced that they began to convince their congregations. And then another man stepped out and said, I not only know the year that Jesus is going to return, I also know the day... And I think he even got it down to the time of day. Like, it's going to be around brunch on Saturday. And they convinced so many people that many in their congregation began to sell everything they had. And on the day and the hour that they thought Jesus was going to return, they went out and they stood on the hills and they waited to be taken up into heaven. Now, you and I know that the Lord hasn't returned yet. Especially after going through a series on Revelation. And we might hear this and think, this is silly. Why would somebody do that? The scriptures are clear that no man knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but that is revealed only to the father. However, you and I do the same thing very often. We find ourselves waiting on God, and instead of being active, we stand on the hills and we twiddle our thumbs and we do nothing. And that's not how you learn in God's school of waiting. Many times we find ourselves waiting on God, but in our waiting we complain. We say, God, I'm waiting on you, but I haven't heard from you. God, I've been waiting on you, but, but, I, but I don't see an end in sight. And I feel like God looks back at us and he says, I don't know why you're complaining that the phone hasn't rung. You cut the cord to the landline, threw your beeper out the car window, and you burned your cell phone. And you definitely don't check your email, which takes 30 seconds or more to load. You've cut off all the means by which I might speak to you during this waiting. You don't pray. We don't fast, we don't meet with believers, we don't worship, we don't fellowship, and then we wonder why in our waiting we feel like God is not meeting with us. It's because we have severed the means by which he might meet with us and strengthen us. Anna is committed to not doing that. She says, I will wait on the Lord, on the promised Messiah, but I'm going to wait even as I meet with him in prayer and in worship and in fasting. So we wait well when we wait actively, not passively. Now, Simeon and Anna are both doing many overlapping things in the way that they wait for the coming of the Messiah. They're doing a lot of things that that intersect and, and overlap with one another. But the reaction when God finally ends their season of waiting is also the same. We're told that Simeon, in a very strange and frightening instance, takes Jesus from Mary's arms and lifts him up and gives thanks to God publicly in the temple, likely 
within earshot of Anna, and Anna sees what's going on, and then we're told that Anna goes to everyone else who is waiting on the consolation of Jerusalem, and she proclaims that the God that she has waited on is faithful. And so you and I will find ourselves often in God's school of waiting, but the school does not last forever. There is a bell for recess. Shame on us if when the school ends, we don't go to other people who are waiting on the Lord and remind them that the one that they're waiting on is faithful. Because Anna goes and tells all the other people waiting, God's faithful. Simeon takes the Lord up into his arms and proclaims God's faithfulness. I can tell you this. There are people in God's school of waiting who are in the same class that you just passed, and they need to know that there's an end in sight. They need to know that God is faithful. You who are financially stable, there are people in this congregation who are crumbling, and they need to hear you say, I waited on the Lord, and he was faithful to me. You who have found the person that God has called you to spend your life with. I can tell you this especially. There are people in my generation who are struggling to wait for the one that God would have for them. They need to hear you say that the waiting is worthwhile and that God is faithful. You who have walked through sickness, either in your own body or in your family. And have seen that God is faithful to heal, either in miraculous means through the common grace of medicine or by calling people home into the kingdom where we receive our perfect bodies. There are people who are walking through incredible sickness, and they need you, like Anna and Simeon, to stand up and say, God is faithful. I've come through the school of waiting, and I've learned much, and I've met with the one on whom I've waited. So may you and I, when we come to the end of God's school of waiting in our lives, affirm this thing that King David has written in the Psalms, where he says this, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined his ear to me, and he heard my cry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we go out into the world, we would be a people who wait patiently on you, recognizing that there will come a time after we have spent a season in your school of waiting that you incline your ear to us and you hear our cry. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us wait well. Lord, we pray that you would move and work in our hearts so that we might rest in you when all things seem to be crumbling. God, commission us now. Send us out into the world to demonstrate through the power of your spirit that there is a better way of living. It's to live in the way of Jesus. Lord, we ask all these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. Thank you all so much. If you have any questions or it's your first time, I'll be in the corner. And if you're interested in the young adult ministry, there'll be some people by the Family Ministry Center who'd love to talk with you and give you some more information.